Welcome to The Rich Report, a podcast with news and information on high-performance computing. Today, my guest is Peter Brom. He is long known in the HPC industry for a number of inventions, including helping develop luster in the first place. But Peter, welcome to the show today. Nice to be here. Well, Peter, you know, it, it's great to talk to you. You know, I saw your talk in South Africa about TensorFlow, and I was just captivated. This is very exciting stuff. And uh, I wonder if you could just catch us up. What is Peter Brom working on these days? Uh, so Peter Brown is just doing uh, research, you could say. Yeah. Uh, I remain very interested in lots of solutions related to HPC and machine learning. Um, and I try to bridge a little bit um, the areas that I've worked in to listen what, what are other people doing, what's happening with chips, what is happening a bit more on the mathematics side. And um, I, um, so I'm not terribly focused, but uh, TensorFlow is something that I accidentally fell into after being offered a wonderful tour at CERN. They said, you have to do something for us now. And I said, maybe I could tell you how TensorFlow hangs together. Um, these were people at CERN doing machine learning. And so I spent a few months really understanding what TensorFlow is. And I did that from my angle, you know, not really a machine learning angle. And so here's this talk, TensorFlow for HPC, that came out of it. I have a few other activities going on that we'll talk about at, at another time, I think, related to memory technologies and related to uh, uh, machine learning algorithms replacing simulations. And so uh, the, these are, I think, exciting things that people are looking at and uh, worth worth discussing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, uh, I read your name connected with the SKA telescope as well. So there's a... Yes, yes. It, it's <laughs> still very central. And actually, um, we will perhaps touch on it in this talk. I don't know if I included those slides, but but this this talk today is um, definitely something that the SKA community should keep an eye on yeah. uh, as a possible uh, compute platform. Okay. okay. So uh, shall we go? Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, I've got your, I brought, I brought your slides up, Peter. Why don't you go ahead? I'm on, on slide one. Okay. So uh, slide one asks the question, namely, is Google's TensorFlow platform something that can be used or explored for HPC? And um, so before we jump into that, uh, you probably know who I am, uh, but uh, it's perhaps good to quick take a quick look at my career, then you understand a little bit how I ended up here. So I worked on, on pure mathematics and physics for uh, really as an academic until roughly 1997. And then I transitioned into the computing industry and I did a few startups, all related really to what is now called research computing. Uh, and as uh, Rich just mentioned, Luster came out of that. It was actually, Luster is 20 years old um, this year. Uh, so I started that in uh, 1999, uh, very, very early in the year at Carnegie Mellon. Um, from 2013, I've paid less attention to companies and I started to work with the SKA uh, the Square Kilometer Array Telescope community uh, at Cambridge, helping them to design their computers and algorithms. And so since this, these days um, in industry, I've had the privilege really of working with a lot of large compute centers and with many of the vendors uh, who make chips or systems and, and storage devices. And so um, it's, I, I think in this world, like, you know, what will be built next? What is missing? And um, that's, uh, I, I think, what we are going to see today. I, I uh, as I said before, we started really 
I, I decided to, to um, offer the high energy physics machine learning community a systems perspective of TensorFlow. So not really looking at TensorFlow as a toolbox for machine learning, which is what it was built for, but really, you know, what is it in terms of compilers, platforms, operating systems, and so on, and, and chip design. And I came away just very impressed and very excited about how this platform had been put together by by Google and what the promise is. So um, so let's let's take a look at that. So TensorFlow is now very widely used and it has really gained a lot of ground on other packages. It was only openly released, I think, maybe three years ago or so um, by Google. It, it had been worked on before and it has really a lot of flexibility for deployment. Uh, the deployment really can vary from a cell phone to some ultra new supercomputer, depending on where you need to run your algorithms that you've developed with TensorFlow. Uh, the development tools are, are excellent and the performance that is achieved is really very high. Um, it's a masterpiece of engineering. I think there are very few projects that have impressed me as much as TensorFlow in terms of all the people that contributed to it and, and the, in, the the awesome speed with which it's come together. For example, Google released three versions of a chip in three years' time. You know, that's almost unmatched in the industry to be able to do the updates so quickly. Um, they pulled a lot of specialists together, both software people, hardware people, machine learning people. And I think from the HPC perspective, this is really a door opener for new accelerated processing unit design. So I call it an XPU on the slide. Um, and here what we're seeing is that when you do domain specific computations, in this case, you know, matrix stuff for machine learning, there is actually really a lot that you can do that wasn't done yet in, uh, in, in processor development until now. So why did Google do this? Um, if they, they, they realized something like 10 years ago already that their AI efforts could easily mean doubling their data centers. And this would have to be done if people only did a few voice searches per day the amount of computing that requires is massive across the world. And so they started to realize, boy, we need to be very careful because doubling the data center is very, very expensive. Secondly, they realized machine learning and AI will be in many of our products. So we will have so many projects that pursue machine learning solutions. The development productivity is really key. So Google released TensorFlow in 2015. It's a second design following another system called Disbelief, I think. Um, and TensorFlow's scope is really profound. It offers a language, a domain-specific language for machine learning computations, it has a compiler, it has chips, and then it has lots of tools and DevOps. And really in you know, 30, 45 minutes, we can't look at all of this, but we can look at a few of these aspects and, uh, and see what they are worth. So this is really a mega project um, you know, Google hasn't really released the numbers that they've spent on it, but it's easy to see that this is something that runs into the hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. Uh, so much was created for it. So for Google, for TensorFlow, the challenge was high productivity software development, portability from phones to massive clusters, and the lowest cost performance ratio. 
Um, a similar project in terms of money numbers is perhaps the telescope, the SKA's telescope. Yeah, um, that's a, a project on the order of half a billion dollars and it has its own challenges. But again, here it must meet budgets. It has also very, very high performance computing in it. And just like in TensorFlow, the productivity of the software development is very, very important. So that's a central element. So when you look at these mega projects, which, you know, there are always a few going on, um, they are typically handled with co-design. And so you can see a little bit about co-design on, on slide seven. So co-design means that different groups of people from different angles contribute to an architecture for the solution. And so there are executives who lead the effort, there are experts, uh, so we already mentioned that for TensorFlow there were, you know, language experts, chip experts, compiler experts, deployment experts. Um, then there are users who usually have an enormous amount of input to tell people what they need and tell people, the developers and experts, when it's not good enough yet and so on. IT is a big part to get it deployed. And there are relations with vendors always, people that build the chips or sell other things. And this management of co-design is actually a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, it's very easy for small numbers of people to get ahead or to get out of touch and uh, managing a co-design effort is, is not at all so easy. But they are taking place all the time and I think many are successful. So let's begin to look at the technical part of the story. So TensorFlow is a layered system for machine learning. And so the, the picture on, on this slide eight um, shows you some of the layers. So at the top, there is really a machine learning focus. And this is what is frequently discussed in courses and so on. And Google has made it very easy to have all kinds of canned solutions for many models uh, that can be connected to data sets fairly easily. Layers can be built and experiments can be done with that. And that is probably the part of TensorFlow that machine learning people use every day to develop their algorithms and eventually deploy them and use them. Below that, there's a Python front end and, and Python uh, really interprets the TensorFlow commands as, as we will see and compiles them into um, well, into something that a runtime engine can handle. Yeah, and so there's a special TensorFlow execution engine that takes these um, the, these codes that are generated by the Python frontend or by some of the other frontends, although I think the frontends all ultimately feed back into Python maybe. The runtime itself is written in C++. The runtime runs on CPUs, GPUs, on Android phones, on iOS, and it can be further compiled with a lot of optimization for some of the same platforms, like the, the phones are typically compiled, running compiled TensorFlow. And Google developed a special chip called the Tensor Processing Unit that uh, you can run TensorFlow commands on. So, so let's look at that core. On, on the left side, you see a very simple data flow diagram where the, the inputs are at the bottom and the outputs is uh, is at the top, and this is simply a matrix multiplication. And so the 
operation is in this case a basic tensor flow operation that can take a matrix and a vector. So tensors are generalized matrices and vectors and these tensor flow packages is really a data flow environment for tensors to put usually relatively simple linear algebra expressions together, uh, but um, doing that in a, in a clever and efficient way. So there are different names now for everything. So a feed is used for this input data that we have at the bottom and a fetch is used for the output data, but that's just a word. Yeah, there's not much mean, no, no, no special meaning for these words beyond what you already think they are. So what you do in the TensorFlow core is you express these kind of graphs. Um, and so you mention what operations and what data dependencies exist. And TensorFlow treats that graph declaratively. That means it isn't really executed right away. It is first defined. And that means that the TensorFlow engine can do lots of optimization on this graph. So for example, it can split it into two graphs to run it on two computers. And it can do that in multiple ways. It can say some of the data goes to this computer, some of the data goes to that computer, but it can also split the computation, saying some of the computation happens on this computer and the other computation happens on another computer. So this is a good approach for TensorFlow to use. These declared graphs are good to manipulate. Yeah, they are things you can compile and things you can do things with. Um, you can eliminate a lot of things from it that you don't need. And the declarative approach is now uh, is, is quite popular for, for complex computing. So if we look on the next slide, 10, this, the um, execution of the graph is in principle quite simple. Yeah, the TensorFlow engine will look at one of the outputs, yeah, one of the fetches that the user won, and it will find the dependencies. And so it is going to, to check what other numbers do I need, what other tensors do I need to get the output. And based on that, it goes backwards through the graph and evaluates what is needed to get to the output. So this is called lazy evaluation because the only things that are computed are the things that are actually needed. Yeah, that's what the dependency checking ensures. So this is different from um, eager evaluation where everything is evaluated as soon as it's encountered. Uh, this makes it much easier also to embed parallelism because while you're checking the dependencies, you can see blobs of computing that don't depend on each other and so they can be executed in parallel. Yeah, so again here, the declarative and lazy evaluation are a good way to get some parallelism. So the challenges that Google faced for this execution framework were quite a few. Um, <clears throat> so it needs to run on distributed systems. Yeah, many of the data sets are, are petabytes in size, and so they have to be run on, on very large clusters. So graphs have to be split. Data has to be fed to multiple architectures and there's a control architecture to coordinate all the jobs that you get in this way. Um, there are also a lot of optimizations you can do. So in particularly machine learning uh, computations, there are often very, very many inactive nodes in these data flow graphs. So these are computations that don't do anything because perhaps there is zero inputs or 
uh, or they were an expression that is otherwise not not used because some uh, some some computations are sometimes deactivated in machine learning. There are also operations that do nothing. And on top of that, there are lots of constants floating around that you could perhaps not read all the time, but you could simply embed them in the code. So this is the sort of thing that the optimizer can do in the runtime is remove what you're not executing, put the constants right in there before you start computing. Um, a compiler was developed, and the compiler is called XLA for Accelerated Linear Algebra. It has two modes of operation. So one is just-in-time compilation, and this means that while the algorithm is running, suddenly some fast code is generated. And because it is done just-in-time, TensorFlow will know what is the size of the matrices I'm working with, how shall I chop them up with tiles and that sort of thing, and it can do that for different architectures and memory layouts and so on in, uh, in different ways. Another mode is ahead-of-time compilation to simply create a standalone binary, say for a cell phone. So lots of um, optimizations can be done here. And um, many of these optimizations would be very, very difficult for programmers to do one by one. So for example, the queue lengths to shuttle data through these graphs is actually quite difficult to adjust and uh, tends to take care of that. Um, an example is on slide 12. There you see graph modifications for distributed execution. Yeah, and we already said sometimes some data um, is uh, sent to different nodes and different computations take place. And yeah, you see how the graph on node zero is split into two graphs with uh, special message channels. And so again here, coding messaging into your uh, into your program is a difficult task, but the TensorFlow compiler takes care of that. Good, so let's begin to look at the hardware platform. So um, there are many execution platforms, as I said, for TensorFlow, and typically it's used on by developers in Docker machines, uh, and all you need is a Docker machine with Python, and you can run TensorFlow with lots of debugging tools, and uh, you can even invoke a GPU connected to a Docker, uh, a, a Docker image. Um, but if you're doing training and inference for production and you're a company like Google, you will encounter huge scale. And so in this case, acceleration is possible by using GPUs. They are very popular in machine learning, as you've probably heard, and FPGA acceleration. And the compiler, the XLA compiler, simply will create the code for it. There is very little a programmer needs to know to use these platforms. Uh, there are also custom TPU processors, which were uh, developed by, by Google over the last uh, probably, you know, I think maybe six, seven years or something like that. So on slide 14, we have a few pictures of these. Uh, they are accelerator cards and they sit on a PCI bus in a commodity server. And um, the uh, newest one is the blue one. Uh, what you see is that it's liquid cooled. That's these gray pipes on top. And you see that there are four chips uh, sitting on uh, on that accelerator board. And uh, these are called the uh, the tensor processing chips. 
I think that there are then subsequently four of these cards in a server. So you get 16 chips and then inside each chip uh, there are um, I think two or four depending on the version matrix multiplication units. So there is just through the numbers uh, a, a lot of processing added on these uh, on these PCI slots. So Google deploys these in something that they call pods, P-O-D-S, where they really clusters. And what you see here is um, is a rack, and it, it looks a little different than an HPC rack, but it's essentially very similar with communication cables for um, I.O. and other data, power, cooling, and, and so on. Yeah, and um, the, the, the pods are um, um, are are quite large, and in in a minute uh, we will look at some numbers. But the the TPU V3 at the bottom has ultimately a thousand of the accelerator cards in them, uh, or 256 nodes. Yeah, and so that is um, uh, that's you know not a small cluster, not a very big cluster. But when we'll see the compute power that comes out of it, it's it's really uh, a lot. So the special thing about the TPU chips is a special matrix multiplication unit, the MXU. And um, the, the way that this roughly works is that the MXU has tens of thousands of little compute units and it has connections between them. And so what you see on the left side is a lot of queues with data. So these could be elements, for example, in a vector. And there will be hundreds of elements fed into the chip, into the MXU chip. Um, and then they will be processed on. They will not be written back to memory. They will be moved to another cell where the next multiplication takes place. So this is very suited for things like matrix multiplication, where one element in a matrix is seen by many other elements in a vector that you might be mul multiplying with this matrix. And this is called a systolic um, architecture. I think it, it just relates to um, a lot of data movement without writing data back into memory. And it was quite popular in the you know 1980s, 1970s, but uh, it's only now I think that it is really being productized. So there are in total, hundreds of thousands of these arithmetic and logic units, or on the order of 100,000 of these units in one of these chips. And what, what results is enormous processing power, namely on the order of 100 teraops per cycle. Yeah, And uh, that just comes by uh, multiplying the number of units we have with the number of operations without much data movement. The data movement is just into the systolic chip and then out of the systolic chip. So the, the system organization is, is shown on the next slide. And uh, what, what you basically see is that um, there is a TPU server that um, creates the code. And the code is, is, is quite interesting. It is sent to the chip 
over uh, the, the Google pro uh, remote procedure calls, gRPC. And so Google uses that both over PCI and over TCP IP. And in this case, the instructions of these chips are actually calls. They are remote procedure calls. So it's very different. There's no instruction registered and no fetches of, of instructions. You tell this accelerator card, this is what you're going to do next. And this works really well when you have big chunks of data that you need to operate on. Yeah, so it's quite quite different from a from a CPU. And again, the XLA compiler will create this code just in time, adjust the data sizes of blobs of data and so on that they send to the accelerator cards. Uh, but the latency here at the moment is still quite high. So you really want to use this, use this when you have a lot of data and you can keep using the same algorithm uh, that, that has been compiled. So um, the next slide shows you perhaps why we should be pretty excited about this. So the TPU v3 specs, um, they, they've been partly released by Google in an announcement uh, and I made some conservative guesses based on uh, the V2 chip. And so let's let's look here. So the TPU 3.0 has one card, four chips per card, and 16 of these matrix multiply units. The TPU node in the pod has four cards, yeah? And then the TPU pod has a thousand cards or 256 nodes. Now, the memory bandwidth is where things become very special. The memory bandwidth of one chip, one TPU chip, is five terabytes per second. And that is achieved by um, 16 HBM2 links. And you see each MXU has its own high bandwidth memory. Yeah, and the high bandwidth memory uh, achieves at least 300 megabytes per second, uh, gigabytes per second, and so you get five terabytes per second per card, I should say. Per node becomes four times more, so that brings you to 20 terabytes per node per second, or five petabytes per second for that pod with 256 nodes. And the flops similarly reach incredible numbers. So one TPU card has 100 teraflops per second, the node gets 400 and the pod gets 100 petaflops per second. So let's just stop here for a moment. 100 petaflops per second in 256 nodes. Yeah, 100 petaflops per second is roughly the number one machine on the top 500. And yes, there are different floating point formats used and so on, so it's not an apple to apple comparison, but this is way ahead of HPC. Yeah, in 256 nodes, there is a lot of compute power and memory bandwidth here. Peter, is that 64-bit double precision or is that something else in this case? No, it is, uh, I, I'm not 100% sure that it has been specified. Um, the uh, So it started with um, the option, I think, of eight or 16-bit precision with uh, a, a new Google format uh, called the uh, the B float for a brain float. Um, then they went to a 16-bit uh, and 32-bit combination, I think, for the V2 chip. But the details, uh, I, I, I do not exactly know, but it's definitely not 64-bit floats. However, 
one of the interesting lessons that the HPC community is already learning from the machine learning effort is that often you don't really need these 64-bit floats. They are a luxury, yeah, but they're ultimately quite costly. And, uh, you know, at another point in time, uh, I will tell you what we're doing in the SKA processing to uh, basically reduce the memory bandwidth by using these lower precision numbers carefully, even the computations can be done at high precision. Yeah, inside the compute chips, there's plenty of speed, but moving the data in and out is extremely costly. Yep. And so the, by the way, the, the five petabytes is an honest five petabytes. So if you have smaller numbers, that goes even further than it already goes. Yeah. And five petabytes per second is, uh, you know, a lot of uh, memory bandwidth. Um, so this, you know, this should raise eyebrows, and we'll we'll get back to a few more speculations about this in a minute. I just want to look at the left bottom of this graph and uh, of this slide, where where we talk about operations per clock cycle, but that's because that's really the new thing. So a CPU has you know tens of operations per clock cycle through pipelining and cores. Yeah, so you usually have tens of cores now, and by pipelining the instruction roughly one result comes up every every clock cycle. If you factorize your operations, you get maybe a vector depth of some, say, hundreds or so. So we get like on the order of a thousand operations per clock cycle. GPUs enlarge that to tens of thousands and TPUs to a hundred thousand. Yeah. And so this is, I think, indicative of what is happening here. Yeah. The, the pipeline is even deeper than it was before. Uh, due to the systolic array. Um, on, on the right side, you see the instructions. And as I already mentioned, the, the, the instructions are really the TensorFlow operations. Not all TensorFlow operations, but quite a few can be invoked on the chip. And they are simply um, RPCs to the chip. Yeah, it's quite a new execution model, but it works well here. And what you see here is you know, simple data movement commands as well as uh, maybe a matrix multiplication or some convolution or activation function that you uh, compute for lots of elements of vectors or tensors. Yes, as we said, this is a big machine, yeah, and it should work quite well for moderate granularity computations like SKA and AI for which it would make. It won't work very well for things like adaptive mesh refinement because the communication overhead is probably much worse than it is on a traditional computer. But just like GPUs in 2003, this looks like a platform to me that is definitely worth tinkering and playing with to see its potential. Yeah, it may not be quite there at the moment. For example, the precision of the numbers may not be right. And yes, it may ultimately require a new version of the TensorFlow chip to make these adjustments but the promise is definitely there. Yeah, and um, some of the candidate enablers that may still need to be created are, you know, does HPC need more operations than the TensorFlow operations? You know, perhaps uh, they don't, is my feeling. Yeah, there is a lot in the TensorFlow operations that is directly mapping to, um, to HPC calculations. Is a more general systolic network needed? Yeah, and it may be needed, I think, for 
particular kinds of graph computations, but there are lots of computations for which the available systolic interconnect in the matrix multiplication unit is actually good enough. Yeah, mixed precision arithmetic would really be the best, yeah, where precision can be adapted um, as parts of the computation flow by. I think this is looked at a lot in connection with posit numbers and uh, the RISC-V community is fairly hot about it. I hope that that takes off, but you know it's early days to say if it if it really will be successful. For SKA, this could be a breakthrough. Yeah, they've been looking at huge computers where not five petabytes of memory bandwidth is needed every second. So not five petabytes per second, but 200 petabytes per second. And so here you, for the first time, see 40 pods would do it. Yeah, 10,000 uh, TensorFlow nodes. It's the first time we see something that is within reach, at least. Yeah, previously we were looking at hundreds of thousands or or millions of machines. Yeah, so that's definitely worth exploring. Yeah, even though it's not likely perhaps to work immediately, there's a lot of promise here. I think we're coming to the end. Yeah, um, TensorFlow is something to enjoy. Yeah, go read about it. its its wonderful project structure yeah what was built how does it all link together it's so thought through it's it's just uh, it reads like a novel when you go through the documentation it's very easy to play with it google's documentation is extremely good yeah i think that um a, a couple of lessons here is there could be significant cost benefits here uh, and this is really custom hardware for a particular domain. Yeah, it's not completely general purpose. Um, another lesson is this is a project that's not easy to do again. Yeah, the, uh, the amount of resources poured into it have been very large, very, very clever people worked on it. And um, but there is a lot of promise here. Good. I think that's where we should stop. Okay. Thanks. Well, Peter, a lot of questions come to mind with the potential of this. I remember when I saw your talk, in South Africa, you mentioned that some of these techniques are not new, that they came from what, the 60s or 70s. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, in those days, people already realized that uh, making deep arrays of processing units that are connected with a network can eliminate a lot of writing to memory, uh, to SRAM within the chips. And that's actually a very energy um, costly operation to do. And so yes, these architectures have been lying around and uh, they were, there are many, many variants of it. Some very beautiful mathematical ones that have like perfect parallelism, like many, uh, many elements um, working in complete synchrony, never overloading network connections. Um, and so for example, networks have been discovered that have at most two hops or at most four hops they're rarely ever used, I think, at the moment, but they're obviously very attractive for evening out the workload. Um, and these things are ancient. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they're from the 1990s, 1980s, and uh, yeah, it's 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 lovely to look at it. Actually, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Peter, in terms of data flow and data management, which I didn't see as part of this, really. I mean, you're going over a PCI e-bus, right? Which doesn't have anything close to these kind of bandwidth numbers. How are they getting that done? Does the data come in and just crunch until it spits out some kind of 
output? Uh, so let's see. So the, the cards are quite carefully architected to get 30 gigabytes per second into the card. So if you go to the extra slide, uh, there is a TPU block diagram, which, by the way, I, I took from uh, a Google uh, presentation. So what you see at the so so we so what we see on the left is is 15 uh, gigabytes per second for the V1 uh, TPU, and I think that has been doubled to for the V3 or the V2 already. So that is the bandwidth per card. So now, yes, you will want to do computations that um, do enough on the data that this is a reasonable pipe, yeah, into the uh, into the PCI bus. But it's not so bad, yeah. Fourteen gigabytes per second per card is sixty gigabytes per second per node. That's not very different from the memory normal DRAM memory bandwidth of a computer. And then what you see internally is that the uh, the bandwidth on this first uh, TPU into the matrix multiplier unit is 160 gigabytes per second. Uh, that was before they used HBM. And so this more than doubled, I think, with HBM from version two. Well, Peter, these, these devices right now are only available from Google through the cloud. They don't sell these chips, right? Yes. To, uh, yes. Is the future Google Cloud, is this going to be, you think this will be the only way to get at this, these capabilities? Well, I, I don't really know what to think about this. Of course, everybody <laughs> the So to some degree, um, is it very difficult to be beholden to a chip that you can't ever rebuild mm -hmm. or uh, to a chip that you can't touch because it's in the cloud. Yeah, I, I don't really know to what degree you want to control this. Yeah. Another way of looking at it is that Google's design is out there. They, you know, there's a wonderful paper by Dave Patterson on this chip mm -hmm. yeah, where he describes the team's effort. And so I would imagine that some of the other um, uh, machine learning processing units that are currently uh, under development would have very similar mechanisms. And we see that, for example, in the latest NVIDIA chip. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, there is possibly a problem here. You could also say this is the future, you know, and you don't really have to worry about it. The resource is available to you. Uh, that's, you know, there are, people will take different attitudes about this, I think. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, Peter, this is very exciting, especially in terms of things like the SKA yeah. telescope that have these unimaginable data requirements and computation and everything so uh, and machine learning just eats data for lunch as I like to say <laughs> right <laughs> yes, yes. yeah yeah well Peter I'm really looking forward to hearing more about this as uh, you learn more and work more with folks to see where this is gonna go and play around with it I guess what are your next steps of uh, after this talk what would you say so so I've, I'm encouraging some graduate students um, at, at a few, few universities to play with this and uh, maybe do um, explore some true HPC algorithms and see how efficient are they on this platform. Yeah, so I can't find anything yet. Yeah, so so this, it must have captivated many people, the idea, but the work still needs to be done. Those look like projects that are very reasonable uh, to do. Yeah, I think exploring a few libraries with, with benchmarks or so would, should be possible. 
And I think then we have to sort of see like what is really blocking using this. Yeah, is this really a candidate, or do we have some missing things? And see if we can get some interest from the community at, at Google to um, to you know make changes if needed. Yeah, but at I think we just don't even know yet. Well, I, I love your parallel to the, looking at the GPU chips. Um, exactly. Right? I mean, <laughs> uh, the idea that it could be used for computation was just the theory. And look at it now. The biggest supercomputers in the world are based on these devices. So. Yeah, but, you know, when you look at the early efforts there, weren't these, uh, you know, very clever hackers that used graphics operations to do calculations? Mm -hmm. uh, this didn't have a smooth start with CUDA being there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, this is a, <laughs> yeah and, and I think we're in the very early days of, of looking at this as a possibility. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter, hey, I really want to thank you for um, doing this talk again for us here on, on uh, Inside HPC, and we're looking forward to hearing more from you. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Okay. All right, folks, that's it for the Rich Report. Stay tuned for more news and information on high-performance computing.